Good morning. Um, we, like Ben said, we're going to continue our, our parable series. Today we're going to talk about the mustard seed. Um, and just to dig a bit deeper into, into these stories that Jesus told. Um, the question that, that I think keeps coming up is that what, what do these stories have to do with our life in the 21st century? Jesus lived uh, in his earthly ministry in the first century, fast forward 2,000 years, and so what, does he, what do his stories have to teach us and how do they apply to us in our everyday lives? Uh, amongst all the cultural, scientific, technological advances that we've made, do they really hold uh, true and, and fast for us to show us a good and beautiful way to live? So you, you might be here as a skeptic, just thinking of this whole God thing and, and wondering, you know, you're not even really sure what you think about Jesus in the first place, what you think about God um, in the first place. Because, you know, there have been many philosophers and religious uh, people that have come on the scene and, and taught truth to us, and, and so Jesus may be numbered one among many in your mind. And so what does the Bible have to teach us that these other teachers haven't already said? And you also might be here as a lifelong Christian, maybe you grew up in the church, and as we're talking about a parable series, you're thinking, yeah, 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 I get it. Like, parables are nice stories. They're really great for like children's church because they teach a nice lesson about how to respect your parents or be good citizens or whatever, but I've got all those lessons. Let's just hurry this up because uh, I've got brunch up next. The crepes are calling. You know, I got my name over at the chef. Let's just get church over with, teach us a nice parable, and we'll get on with our lives. I do think Jesus does not let us get away with, with that. I think Jesus has really clear lessons to teach us that actually might surprise us. So... For some of us, we may need to actually step into this space and ask the Holy Spirit for something fresh and for something new. Not necessarily a, a new thing, like if you're getting new things from the Bible uh, that people have never taught, that's, that's usually called heresy. So I'm not really talking about something new for the sake of new. I'm, I'm saying something new for you, new for your life, new and fresh so that you can really grab a hold of and internalize as uh, truth for you. Uh, so we're going to change it up a bit. What Mark does, we're, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. What, does, what Mark does is tell us the what of the parable that we're going to, to read. And then he tells us the why, why Jesus teaches these parables. And I think for us, what we need to do is reverse that a bit. So we're going to talk about the why of the parables. Why does Jesus teach the parables in the way that he does? And then we're going to read the what of the parables, what Jesus actually says to accomplish his goal there, okay? I think this is helpful, and it will both elucidate Jesus' purpose for the parables and hopefully, like I said, breathe new life into them for us. So in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is deep into his earthly ministry. He's gathering followers, and he's teaching them the way of the kingdom, how life works if they want to flourish according to kingdom principles. His way seems askew from the normal way that people look at life, so it may seem upside down to us, but that's what the kingdom is being called, the, the upside down kingdom that actually brings things right side up. Right? So in Mark chapter 4 and verse 33, uh, I'm reading from the NIV, it says this with many similar parables. So Jesus spoke similar parables to reinforce, because how many of you know hearing something once 
doesn't necessarily make it stick. So he taught these parables probably on multiple occasions, and he taught many similar parables uh, to, to each other. Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand, which is really kind of Jesus, because you know Jesus created everything. He's the smartest person who has ever lived because he's God in the flesh, and he came and he put the cookies on the bottom shelf for us. It's really kind of God to do, right? He, he kind of measured what he thought they could handle at that point in their life and at that point in their maturity, and he taught at that level then to stretch them a bit, and he used parables to do that. But when he was alone with his own disciples, uh, he explained everything. And actually, the, the line before that, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. The crowds of people, he spoke in stories that were kind of veiled. And when his disciples were alone, Jesus told them directly what he had been trying to tell everyone in the Lord's group. So a parable is a self-containing story, uh, as its most clear meaning is derived from the story itself. It's different than a, uh, uh, an allegory where the meaning is debated between people and you kind of have to have this secret key to unlock its meaning. A parable is, is really, uh, really when you sit with it, it's really clear what Jesus is talking about. You may scratch your head a bit, but the, 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 the parable in that way interprets itself. Scripture interprets scripture as it stands on its own two legs. So there's a New Testament scholar, Amy Jill Levine, who wrote a book called Short Stories by Jesus. The interesting thing about Amy Jill Levine is that she's Jewish, and so she's not a follower of Jesus per se, but she's undergone rigorous New Testament uh, study, and then so she's written on as she, she respects Jesus as a teacher. So I think she has, even though she's, she's not a Christian per se, she has some interesting things to say about the parables of Jesus because she herself is Jewish. So coming from that Jewish perspective, she says this, What makes the parables mysterious or difficult is that they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values, our own lives. They bring up to the surface unasked questions, and they reveal the answers we should have always known but refused to acknowledge. Our reaction to them should be one of resistance rather than acceptance. I think that's a fascinating thing to point out. If we hear a parable and think, ooh, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, we are not listening well enough. So in other words, the, pa- the, the parables, the words of Jesus, should challenge us, and, and there, we should find in our hearts something that pushes back and say, no, that can't be right, that can't be true, that's not for me. If we just minimize it by saying, isn't that a nice story, then we actually haven't let the words of, of Jesus penetrate our heart and actually challenge us. Because again, he's trying to reorient us to the right way of living according to the kingdom, and we can't assume that we're already living that way. And a parable is a kind way to tell a story where we go, you know, he's completely right. I need to do that. Okay? So remember, Jesus was a blue-collar worker preaching to country folks who didn't have the luxury of an advanced education. It's not that education's a bad thing, it's that the religious elites often miss the meaning of these parables because Jesus himself didn't fit their prescribed notion of what a messenger from God should look like. He was too simple. He spoke with a Galilean accent. He was too run-of-the-mill. He was not from the right neighborhood, and they completely missed God in their midst and discounted his words. 
So what Jesus says in the parables is that he tells, what he says is veiled in their meaning enough, those who were content with their station in life were oblivious to what he was trying to say. It went right over their heads because they discounted him so much. But those who resonated with him were able to lean into him and draw close to him and pull out the deeper meaning of his teaching. And that's true for us today. Remember, Jesus spoke in stories, in veiled stories, but with his disciples who sat with him and said, what did you mean by that? He spoke to them clearly. It's the same for us today. If we read this story and go, yeah, that's nice for somebody else out there, we're going to miss it. But if we sit with Jesus and say, I know there's more here. I know the Bible is deeper than it is wide. You have more for me, I just know it. We wrestle with Jesus, we wrestle with the text, and he gives us more when we ask, okay? So we can't read these stories and think, yeah, that's fine and good, because in Jesus's kingdom, only the hungry will get filled, but the satiated will go away still hungry. Jesus' brother uh, illustrates this when in James he says, God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. If we discount these stories as just nice moral tales meant for children, we'll miss it. And that would be more in line with a reading of how the religious elites in Jesus' day heard him and responded to him. So, enough of that. Let's move on to the parable itself. So, Mark chapter 4, verse 30 says this, again, he, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable should we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants. And in Matthew 13, 32, he adds this, it becomes a great tree. So again, he told these stories, the Gospels record these in different ways. It's kind of like looking at a diamond through a different uh, aspect. You know, there's facets of this that get filled in. So Jesus says that this mustard seed that's the smallest among the seeds, when it gets planted, it grows great and becomes this great tree with such big branches that the birds can perch in in its shade. So the parable itself is pretty short and pretty concise, which is really fitting for the example of the mustard seed itself. It would kind of feel weird if he went on and told, you know, big long story about this little seed, right? So it's really short, really concise, really brief for us. And he's describing what the kingdom of God is like to correct any false impressions that they may have and how, how to let them know how to align their lives so they can live in the flourishing and fulfillment of his kingdom. The kingdom is likened to this mustard seed, which he calls the smallest among all the seeds. Now, that part in particular shouldn't be taken literally. It's a figurative Jewish saying, which is meant to emphasize the smallness, but the potency of the smallness, right? So in in, uh, uh, Luke, I think it is, or or maybe later in Matthew, he talks about how uh, a mustard seed, uh, faith as small as a mustard seed, can move mountains, right? So he's using these idioms and just this everyday language that this agrarian society would be familiar with. Uh, Many people have, I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it's really small, but there are smaller seeds like it. Again, it's just a saying that Jesus uses to connect with their everyday life and their lived experience. So something the size of a mustard seed was seen as almost comically small. That's how small it was. 
And Jesus' point is that what begins unnoticeable soon becomes observable and given enough time and patience then becomes large and overwhelming. So mustard seeds were common in that day and everyone would be familiar with this. They, they were familiar that the mustard seed grew into uh, a plant that was about in, in the species that they were familiar with, about 15 feet uh, uh, tall and, and wide. So, so pretty, pretty big and, and enough that, that wildlife could find refuge in it. So Jesus' basic point is this. The kingdom of God may seem small and unnoticeable, but to discount it is to be utterly surprised when it arrives in its fullness. And we're used to this. Uh, we're used to this in our everyday lives, small things being uh, used to motivate larger things. I was, uh, I was on a run this past week, and you know, for me running, if you would have seen me running a couple years ago, you would better start running too, because whatever is coming after me, you don't want to be around for. But as of late, I've found myself like enjoying running, and Northeast uh, Park is, is by my house, or at least a a jaunt over. So I'm jogging. Later at night, it's, it's kind of like dusk. So the firefly, the, and Northeast Park has this uh, prairie reserve. So there's, there's grass uh, out uh, at Northeast Park. And it's really beautiful right now because the, the fireflies come out and it's, I've seen deer out there. It's really picturesque. So I'm jogging. And I'm definitely not breaking any records. I'm, I'm the opposite of breaking records at that point in time. But there's a certain bend in the park uh, that, where the path uh, yeah, just bends around, and, and out of the corner of my eye, I see a skunk kind of waddle from, and the grass is like three feet high uh, right now, so it kind of waddles out, and I don't think I've ever run this fast in my life. And it's not because the skunk is going to attack me, it's not because it's going to claw me or something like that, but you know, um, as well as I do, is that you don't want to be on the business end of a skunk. So that's a, this is a small thing motivating a much larger thing to go, uh, I was going like th 50 miles an hour. That's, that's my watch. I was looking at my watch later and it's like this nice leisurely place. And then, then there's like this giant peak. And then the, it almost looks like a heartbeat because then I crash like, you know, a hundred yards out. And it's like, I'm done. I'm toast. Right? So that's, that's, those are, there are stories in our everyday life where we're used to small things motivating much larger, larger things and to discount the smaller things Oftentimes, it's to our detriment to be on the business end of any kind of animal like that you just want to avoid. So these parables aren't just given as an encouragement. We have to remember. Amy Gillivine reminds us that there is a challenge, that we should recognize resistance in our heart, that when Jesus is teaching these things, it's not just, oh, that's, that's a nice story, Jesus, but there should be something that, that comes into contact with the way that we're used to living our lives to reorient us. In these parables, there's a challenge, a warning, and we must be alert for what it is. And when we don't, when we don't discern it right off, that means we really have to sit with this. If we hear from the parable of the mustard seed, all I need is a small amount of faith and my life will be much more comfortable if I, I trust and follow God, that is just so it's just so banal. It's just so impotent. Just like, it's like, no, there's so much more here that Jesus has for us. The clue in this particular parable is in the incongruence in the explanation of what the mustard seed grows into. Jesus says it grows as big of a tree, as a tree. And a first century Jew would know, because they've seen mustard seeds grow into bushes, that it grows 15 feet tall, and that's a very large bush, but it's not quite tree-like. 
So Jesus is either wrong or there's something beneath the surface that's going on. And my money's on that Jesus is, is uh, scratching below the surface to get attention. And what he's doing is he's actually calling back to the Old Testament where there's several stories of trees growing big and doing certain things. And, and trees here re- representing the kingdom of God and what it does when it particularly comes into collision with other trees. So one example is Ezekiel 17. And the, the prophet Ezekiel is, is speaking for God. He says this, 17.22, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from the topmost shoots and plant it on high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shades of its branches. Jesus is such a wise master teacher. He knows that when he says that the birds of the air will find rest, that, that his listeners will, will recognize touches of Ezekiel in this. You hear the language that he uses, that he's riffing on and retelling it. Uh, and, and Ezekiel 17 is obviously a story about Jesus himself, the Messiah. So he's incorporating even himself in this parable that he's teaching for anyone that has ears to hear what he's talking about. All the trees of the forest, this is where it gets interesting, will know that I am the Lord, will bring down the tall tree and make it the the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. So God, through the Old Testament prophets, declares that he will raise up for himself a splendid tree that will begin small and insignificant, but it will be raised up to preeminence. And this strong cedar will provide a place of rest for the birds of every nation and will find shelter and shade there. And this tree will replace every tall and well-adorned tree, meaning that God's kingdom, led by God's king, will reign supreme. So this brings me to two points that I don't wanna make to make this practical and answer the question, what does this have to do with us and for us? The first, I want to start with a macro vision of God's kingdom. My point is that God's kingdom will reign forever. The first century Jews hearing this from the mouth of Jesus, they would have assumed he was talking about the nation of Israel, that that they were small and insignificant, they were overrun by foreign kingdoms, and they would have interpreted and assumed that God was saying, soon I will come and I will overthrow the Romans and I will bring Israel back into her golden age. And they would have been partially right. God's greater point is that he's appointing a king, a Messiah, and we know his name is Jesus, who will rule from Israel, yes, but not just in an ethnocentric way that they were grounded and used to, but he will rule all the nations And he will bring freedom and grace to all the people. All the birds of the air will come and they will flock and they will find their rest and refuge in this tree, in Christ Jesus. And this harkens again back to Psalm 2. Uh, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth will will band together and will say, why do we need God? Why do we need his king? We're going to do our own thing. Let's throw their bonds, their, their restraints off of us. And then it says this, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
The Lord shall hold them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So for us, we must realize that the kingdom of God will bring itself to fruition without our help. This is both encouraging for those of us who feel overwhelmed by injustice and challenging for those of us who feel sufficient and just fine. Thank you very much. In other words, people who feel like they're at the bottom of the hierarchy, the way of Jesus in the kingdom of God is full of hope. While those who are benefiting from unjust systems see God as disrupting the good thing they have going on. And sometimes they enter into the flourishing of God's kingdom. It's best to get out of the way. God wants partnership, but we should never be fooled into thinking that he needs our help. God's kingdom is coming, whether we're ready for it or not. And it's in our best interest to be ready for it. For it to come in our midst and for it to come in its fullness when Jesus returns. It's better for us to just have the heart check to go, God wants my help. He does not need my help. I'm not offering God you know, any service that he can't do on his own. I'm not offering God a favor on his behalf. And, and I don't deserve to be used in any certain way. God will bring this about with or without me. And he'd rather do it with us. He'd rather do it through us. But if we're resistant to the way of his kingdom, then he will do it in spite of us. Okay? One of the fascinating things, uh, just the statistical phenomenon, is the growth of the early church. I don't know if you've ever looked into this, but remember, the church was born on the day of Pentecost when 120 people, right? Think of all the thousands and thousands of people that Jesus' ministry touched and 120 people met in the upper room on the day of Pentecost and the church was born by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then over the next 300 years, it grew literally exponentially to 3.5 to 4 million estimated people all over the known world. How did it do that? Because it didn't do it with any slick advertising, and it didn't do it through any celebrity pastoring. It did it through the everyday work of kind and humble and unknown people following in the way of Jesus, offering Christ's love and their own hospitality and the power of the Spirit. That's how it grew, that exponential. Think about that, from 120 to almost 4 million people in 300 years. So next to this macro vision of this reality, first, the kingdom of God will reign forever, and second, we begin with the little that we're given. Remember King David, how he was tested. He was, he was chosen to be Israel's next king, but that wasn't before a season of severe testing. He was tested through rejection, People didn't want him. He was tested through his, his own, for, when, when Samuel the prophet came to town, there was like a major celebrity coming to town, and his family forgot to invite him to dinner. He was out watching sheep. He was rejected and ridiculed by his brothers who thought he was just in it for himself. He was tested through the giant Goliath, and then he was tested through submitting to uh, ungodly leadership. Saul wanted him literally dead. It was abusive and and traumatizing for him. So David was tested and formed while he was unknown still. 
And it was through that process that God formed him and formed his character so that he could lead God's people as the next king. Many people have met their undoing when they get too much fame or too much fortune too soon, and their character can't sustain their influence. Especially in the social media age, any kind of success can quickly become undone through a quick temper, a momentary lapse in judgment, or just plain old stupidity that's posted too quickly in haste. Christine Kane, I, I heard her preach a message a few years ago that I just was phenomenal, this, this metaphor. She says this, our destiny is far more developed like a roll of film than it is like a snap and upload on social media. First, God gives us a glimpse of what it is that he has for us. Then he takes us into the dark room of anonymity and obscurity, and he begins to forge his image on the inside of us. When that image is forged strong enough, then God takes us out and exposes us to the world. But if we allow the spotlight of the world to come on us before the image of Christ is forged in us, then the light that is on us will destroy us because the character that is in us cannot sustain us. So what are those small things that God has invited you into to form your character? There's a saying, like, everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to take out the garbage. We, we believe we're called to great things, to, to make an impact, to leave an influence, to make a difference. But we live in a culture that wants it too soon, and we want it outside of God's way. What are those small things that God has invited you into to form you and shape you, probably in the, shape, in the place of obscurity, and will no, no one will ever know whether or not you showed up? For me, uh, it's, it's discipleship. Just being formed and, and, and allowing the Spirit of God to make me look more like Jesus. But that's not enough because too many of us see uh, formation as project self. And it's not. It's discipleship is formation for the sake of others. It's becoming more like Jesus so I'm more loving, more quick to serve, more quick to ask forgiveness. And, and those are the things that I want to pass on to my son. So something that I've done here recently that, that we've made a habit. I've got two boys, 11 and eight. And my goodness, I'm just realizing more and more as they get older, my greatest legacy isn't gonna be up here on a stage preaching. It's gonna be who those little boys become as men. And so what we started doing um, a while back is that I do a Bible study with them and I get one-on-one -on -one time with them. And what we do is, I was with John yesterday, we were at public hall, we did some, we went and got barbecue, smoking H's, and then some, uh, you know, little batch dessert, and then we went and we sat at uh, public hall, and he has a journal that he writes in, because I've taught them, they have the action Bible. Parents, this thing, like, start with the Jesus storybook Bible, and when they read that, the action Bible is really solid, especially for young, young boys. It's like, a, it's like a comic book all about Jesus, you know, it's amazing. So they read like a chapter of that uh, through, throughout the week, and then I have them answer three questions. What did I read? What's my reflection? What did the Holy Spirit say to me? And then how do I respond? What am I going to do differently in my life because of this? And then we sit, we talk, and I ask them, what you know, would you like a, in your reading this week? And they tell me, you know, hey, I read about David and Abigail and, and John yesterday. This is so important because... It gives me the opportunity. It just, it seems like everyday stuff, just sitting down and having chocolate milk and a coffee with my son. He, you know, he gets the chocolate milk, I get the coffee. Um, now, it won't always be that way, I'm sure, but, you know, that is how it's now. 
but we, we just start talking, and it's those conversations where I'm, I'm creating space with my sons to ask bigger questions about God and life. And so yesterday, he's, re, you know, he's telling me about David and Abigail, and he, and he looks at me and he says, Dad, do you think God values men more than women because God's a man? And I, I'm just like, thank you, Jesus, for letting me be here to answer that question as best I can. So we talked about some, some theology proper, that God isn't actually a man, that God hasn't been, doesn't have gender, male or female, but he's revealed himself through a patriarchal culture that did not value women as highly. But Jesus always elevated women at every term that he could. And even though Old Testament, through stories like David and Abigail, we see men lifting up and respecting women as, as uh, those old bonds of, of patriarchy are being undone progressively. I'm just like, thank you, God, for letting me be there when that question comes up and he doesn't have to turn to Google when he's a little bit older to find out on his own. Thank you that I get to correct his image of God and say, you know what? All are equal before God, male and female. In fact, New Testament says there's no male, no female. It's the everyday things, guys, that makes a lot of difference. And you all would not know if I never showed up with my sons to help him in those conversations. You'll find out in 20 years by the men that they become, but you will never know day in and day out. But it's the day in and day out things that really do matter. What is it for you that God's asking you to show up when no one's gonna know whether or not you did? It's only you and it's only him. Those are the times that God, he loves those times, guys and gals. He loves it when you show up in the everyday little acts of service to your spouse. I have, this, I have a service love language, so I, I have to like put a bridle on my tongue. That's the, like a, I don't even know what that means all the way. It's something about horses or whatnot. But it's, uh, I have to like not point out, hey, here's how I served you today. Because I'm also words of affirmation. So I, I, I love my wife through, through uh, serving and, and telling her how beautiful and awesome and wonderful she is, which is all true. And then I receive love by going, oh, you did such a good thing by serving. So, so I have to like, Take that and go, only Jesus is going to know that I got up when I didn't want to and, and hustled the garbage out to the end of the, the curb. Only Jesus is going to know. My fam- family might find out later in the week. It's those little things of showing up that make a big difference and all those ways of being formed like Jesus in everyday life. Okay? Now, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you may, some of us may be sitting here and not have a history in God and not, not even maybe you don't have a, a, a long church attendance to, to know how this makes sense over the years. Many of us didn't grow up in Christian homes or we, we saw like our parent, we're trying to make sense of faith because our parents said one thing and did another thing or we see church scandals where pastors preach from the word of God powerfully but their, their lives are a wreck and they crash their family into the rocks. So we, we're just kind of skeptical. Does this really work? Do these little things make a big difference? Is the kingdom of God really going to show up like this? If I stay steady, if I stay faithful, and will the kingdom actually really reign forever? Or is it more kind of optional? Are these really just inspirational stories about a good guy named Jesus? I do think these stories and these parables, when we sit with them and when we wrestle with Jesus' words, really are written for us. These are all great questions, and I I don't know that I have good answers for all of those things. What it does take is time and attention and patience to discern, is God as good as he says he is? 
Is Jesus as beautiful as the Bible really paints him to be? And is the kingdom really as solid? When I look out in the world and all the crises and all the scandals, is the kingdom way really the right way for me? I do think that the kingdom may be small right now and it may seem insignificant for us. But following Jesus over the long term really does pay off. And he invites us all to be involved to take shelter in his branches, to find rest and true human flourishing in the way of his kingdom. And he can use each and every one of us to offer that to other people. Uh, As I was preparing this, I I remembered the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who grew up in really modest accommodations. And so it was really surprising to her that when a series of articles were published together as a book known as Uncle Tom's Cabin, it became so well-received throughout the country. In fact, this book was, was pivotal in, in awakening the abolitionist cause and turning the nation to eliminating the scourge of slavery. So it even merited her a, an invite from the White House to meet President Lincoln. And it's said that when President Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, that he said to her, so you're the little woman who wrote the book, who started this great war. I really do believe God can and use simple and humble yeses from our heart to do incredible things, given faith in him, given time, and given patience. So for us, I'm going to have the worship team come on up. For us, here are the questions that I invite you to sit with through this next week. Where have you looked for strength other than in God? What is it that you're trusting in that's not God's kingdom to bring you rest and relief and refreshment? Where have you neglected his movement in your life because of its smallness? Where have you heard an invitation to sit with him, to be with him, and said, no, that's not important enough. That assignment isn't big enough. That, that job doesn't pay off well enough for me to be satisfied. Maybe it's time to revisit those invitations from him. Maybe it's an invite. Maybe you know you've got a business idea or you've got a ministry calling that really could shake the nations. And you're waiting for your time in the spotlight. You're looking at all the, you know, me and whoever else and going, I could say it better than that. I could do it better than that. But what God is actually inviting you into is a, is a season of smallness, a season of serving, a, a season of waiting and testing and being formed. Why don't you stand with me? I'd love to pray over you all. If you're at home or listening later, just get, get in a posture where you can connect with God. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for these stories. We thank you, God, that you have taught at our level. <laughs> that you didn't just teach at the, the level of the Einsteins at the world, that you broke it down for everyday common people just like us. And yet, in these stories, there's so much challenge. There's a wrestling with, do I really believe this? Is this really applicable to me today? So Jesus, I pray for all of us that you would meet us there. 
Meet us in the doubt, meet us in the skepticism, meet us in the delay of of what we believe is ours. Meet us in the, the quiet, obscure places and give us grace to say yes to you, Jesus. Jesus, pour out your spirit on us. Help us to hear your voice and open your word to us. Help us be like your disciples that drew near to you and sat and and asked you, what does this mean for me? Meet us there, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.